Good morning. This is a uh, wonderful day. This guitar is special to me. When my mother passed away, a very small inheritance came my way. And I wanted to do something that would be memorable. 
And through the course of searching for that, I decided and, and found a gentleman who made guitars. And I engaged him to make a guitar for me. So this guitar is the only one like it in the world. It has my name on the inside of it. And when I went, actually Wayne went with me. And as I started talking to him, uh, you know, and I said, yeah, I want to do this. And I wrote him a check. And then we went into his shop and we looked at logs on the floor, pieces of lumber. That's all it was. And over the next few months, I would go out and I would watch him as he, he would bend and mold and cut and shape and put together the body and the neck. And then he would put the strings on. And the strings exert several hundred pounds of pressure on the top of this. And eventually, those logs, which didn't do anything, became an instrument that makes great sounds. I didn't have anything to do with making the sounds, but it was interesting because the story is to reflect the God we are here to engage with today. And that is, we reflect in a way, the ability to create, be it music and art, instruments. And that's the God we serve, the creator, who is the ultimate creator. He did it ex nihilo, out of nothing. And at the same time, we are also like the guitar. At one point, we were logs. And through the work that God would do on us, we would eventually become bent, molded, shaped, put together, and through all that pressure, be able to eventually make music. And so, as we come today to worship that God, I'd ask you to engage with Him and create, make some sounds. Come, now is the time to worship.
is incredible uh, it's, it's also real special my, my dad passed away about nine months ago and uh, Sam and I sang this at my dad's memorial service and um, I can't wait someday um, I'm going to be reunited with my dad and we're going to sing this again and uh, that last the last verse of this song when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun. We've known less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. So I can't wait. Someday I'm going to be reunited with my dad, my, my grandparents, uh, other loved ones. And this song, just uh, let this song minister to you um, in a special way.
everyone. I'm so glad that you can join us here in person or online. Uh, it's just um, just a joy to get to celebrate and worship together. Uh, my name is Evan Weppler. I'm elementary children's pastor here at CBC. And um, I hope that uh, some of y'all were able to join us last week. Uh, we had our ministry fair out in the commons. And uh, we know there's lots of ways to get to plug in at CBC through ministry. Um, and if you weren't here, uh, if you check your email this week, there is a lot of information about all the ministry opportunities opportunities that we have. Um, we'd love for you to look over that. And if you want to express an interest to find out more as you leave today at the little uh, tables, little, um, I don't know if they're called cubbies, uh, there's little uh, papers that you can also use and turn those in so that you can uh, express interest in finding out about more interest, uh, more, more ministry opportunities. Um, now, of course, there is one great ministry opportunity that I can always share about, um, and that is uh, serving kids' life. Uh, you see, here at CBC, we want to gather in life-changing worship, grow in life-changing truth, and go in life-changing mission. And uh, we believe that we don't just do those things to check them off uh, of a to-do list, because I know we all have plenty of things to do these days, especially with school starting. Um, but uh, we do these things because we believe that they're part of the life of becoming more like Jesus. We want to call people into deeper connection with God. And so our theme uh, this year with uh, recruiting for Kids Life is Connect for Kids Life. You'll see there's four different uh, areas of ministry that we have in our children's ministry. Um, but we believe that it's not just about Kids Life and what we're doing, but about the opportunities that come up uh, when we serve. And so I just want to share just a second about my experiences. You first, you see, I came to CBC as a middle school student and uh, started serving in uh, children's ministry. You'll see a picture up there of myself in a yellow shirt with a little remote control uh, doing drama ministry way, way, way back. Uh, and when I was doing that ministry, that's where I really discovered how God had made me, the gifts he had given me, uh, the gifts he hadn't given me, uh, the ways that I could serve others. And I really sensed his leading in my life. And serving can do that. It puts us in a place where we can seek God's uh, will for our lives. 
it's also a place where we can connect with others through service. Uh, you'll see these pictures here from our Kids Life Camp, some of our storytellers that teach our kids. Um, you'll see even couples that serve together. And serving is a great way to connect uh, with other people at CBC. Um, and of course, one of the best parts is that in Kids Life, you get to connect with kids. Uh, just see the joy in some of these kids' faces and some of these volunteers' faces as well, that you get to serve others uh, and help kids uh, become more like Jesus. And one of the best parts about Kids Life is that we also help kids connect. Um, they get to connect with God. They get to connect with others. Um, they gather, grow, and go, and worship, and serve. And, uh, and you get to help make those opportunities happen. And so you'll see uh, the needs that we have up here um, for serving in, in kids' life. And there are a lot as we're taking a step of faith to open up 930 programming. Uh, so we might ask you to take a step of faith as well uh, and join us. And maybe you're not sure what that would look like, um, but if you stop at the table out in the commons after the service, I can let you know more information or you've contact Ann Austin. Uh, these are our needs, but it's possible that you might have a need uh, to plug into ministry as well. Uh, and so this might be where God's calling you. Um, and uh, there's other ways that we'd love for you to plug in at CBC as well, including our men's ministry. And so I want you to watch this video with me as we find out about what they're doing this fall. The world feels dark. They're getting darker. Everywhere I turn, there's anger, hate, upheaval. But there is real hurt. Yes, there are real things to be addressed. There is more and more division. You're wrong. I'm right. You're just ignorant. I know better than you. Humans try to create truth in their own image. Your truth, my truth, redefining gender, marriage, love, family, identity, morality, fighting amongst themselves, cancel culture, woke, big tech censorship, looking to political figures to be our savior. Our candidate is the answer. She'll fix everything. No, our guy's the answer. He'll save us. Don't tell me what to do. I know what's best for you. We know better than God. We are God. There's no God. The world feels broken. Is it coming apart? What is truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do we communicate truth in love? Join us for Responding to the Secular Culture with Truth in Love. Learn to be a light in the world. Join us for this teaching series. Calling all men to be all in, to stand for Christ, to shine the light of Christ's truth in love to a dark world. Let's engage the world in love. Responses to the pilot series reflect the need for understanding and navigating our time. Our society affects us all and challenges our faith. This series is applicable from a God-honoring, biblically-centered format. See today's culture through the lens of Scripture. Just what I was looking for, right on point. This series reminds us, even in a dark world, we can know the hope of Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we would love for you to dive in deep and connect uh, with CBC. Uh, if you want to find out more about the men's ministry, their alcove is out there and it has more information about their series. Um, and we hope that you can connect with God in worship today uh, as we continue with our worship series. Uh, and I'm just going to call us to worship with a uh, reading from Psalm 100. And it says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Let this be a time for us to celebrate how great is our God. Would you stand with us? Mm -hmm. 
Thou hast been now forever will. 
pray with me, please. Lord God Almighty, You are great and worthy of praise. Lord, we recognize that around this globe, as we go from time zone to time zone, your name is being lifted up. Whether that happens in church buildings like this, or in cathedrals, or in warehouses, or homes, or huts, Your people declare your praise. However imperfectly we do it, you are worthy of so much more. And Lord, as we gather here in comfort, in freedom, help us not to take that for granted, but to make this a sacrifice of our praise to you the worthy one, and to remember those who suffer, whose lives are in danger simply because they follow you. And whether that's in Afghanistan or somewhere else, Lord, you are God over this universe, and your love and care for each person is as strong as if there was just one of us. So Lord, may we put our eyes on you today and glorify your name as the one true God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, the many, many things I did not learn in seminary, one was about hiring people. And uh, I estimate, I did a little calculation this week and realize that I have, I have read thousands upon thousands of resumes through the years, and I've interviewed hundreds of job seekers. And it still surprises me when um, interviewing somebody who looks really good on paper, and then when you talk to them, they don't even seem to want the job. You ever run into anybody like that? They can't even fake enthusiasm. One guy had a uh, a theology degree, and he was currently a worm farmer, which I did not know was a profession. But apparently worms need farming as well. He seemed rather disinterested throughout our interview, except when talking about worms. So serving Jesus in the local church? Meh. Raising red wigglers? Thrilling! Very passionate about that. So think about what you're passionate about this morning. We are in the second week of our series called Acceptable Worship. And over these seven weeks, we're studying some characteristics of the kind of worship God accepts. And today, the the focus is passion, passionate worship. Because we can't define the kind of worship God accepts on our own. We must know from his revelation, from his truth, what he's revealed, 
what God finds acceptable. When it comes to worship, just how enthusiastic are you? Are you passionate about honoring God? We can get excited about a lot of different things. Sports, entertainment, pets, collectibles, books, gardening, exercise and eating, water skiing and worm farming, all kinds of things. Larry Crabb said that the core problem is not that we're too passionate about bad things, but that we're not passionate enough about good things. And I think that's a, an accurate statement. Because we can be passionate about all kinds of things, but are we passionate about that which matters most? So what does passion for God look like when it comes to worship? And how can we tell if it's missing in our lives? Well, those questions, I believe, are answered in this true but rather odd little story about a, a dancing king and a, an unhappy queen. The story from Scripture revolves around the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, you know what that is if you watch the first Indiana Jones movie anyway. That this uh, box, about four feet long, two feet wide, was what God instructed Moses to build. And it was part of Israel's history for centuries. The Ark was made of wood, covered with gold and on top were two figures of were figures of two angels inside the ark were objects from israel's history including the stone tablets on which the ten commandments were inscribed the ark you have to realize represented the presence of god with his people so it was this visible reminder that god was with them with israel and the ark was considered the most holy object on earth at that period of time. And for that reason, no one, not even the king of Israel himself, was allowed to touch the ark. If they did, they would die. Well, how do you move an ark that you can't touch? Well, God prescribed how this would go. There were rings made. The instructions include uh, rings made in the ark where rods would be passed through. And then these rods were put on the shoulders of the priests and they would carry the ark from place to place it was designed to be mobile it was designed to go with israel wherever they went it was designed to go in front of israel and they went to war it was the symbol of god's presence and power but uh, as you know israel was defeated and the ark fell into enemy hands years later when david became king his army conquered that enemy. And David made it a priority to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up this story in Second Samuel 6. And as that chapter begins, find that David has gathered 30,000 chosen men and they transported the ark back to Jerusalem on a brand new cart made for that purpose. And so verse 5 of 2 Samuel 6, is then David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So we have this huge group of people, at least 30,000 strong, alongside this sacred object, and they're celebrating with an entire band of instruments. They're outwardly expressing great joy and a lot of noise. This is a national celebration. Because what's happened is the symbol of God's presence, which is, has been lacking, is now coming back home. 
But during the trip from where they recaptured the ark back to Jerusalem, disaster strikes. God was disrespected. A guy named Uzzah simply reaches out to steady the ark as the oxen stumble. And he touches it, and God takes his life on the spot. There doesn't seem to be any evil intention here. Uzzah thoughtlessly, automatically reaches out and touches what God said should not be touched. And so verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What happened Well, God had commanded that the ark be only transported in a certain way with these rods carried on the shoulders of priests. And David, by having the ark put on a cart, even though it was made new for the purpose, he had ignored the command of God. So he didn't show reverence, respect for God. I, I put it this way, that David was so fixated on God's goodness that he didn't acknowledge God's holiness. He's celebrating because a victory has happened. Good things are going on. he's, he's, He's worshiping in that sense, but he doesn't acknowledge the holiness of God, the particular character of God in this way. So in a sense, David's celebration of God was casual. It was flippant. Uh, It it was done without care or consideration for the power of God, much the way a child might play with a firearm or fireworks. Now last week we studied how God is jealous, the jealousy of God. And, And this is an example for how much God cares about his honor, how much he deserves respect. And the lack of this, not the lack of celebration, but the lack of this kind of reverence and acknowledgement of God's holiness, it it led to a tragedy. And and that might sound completely unfair to you. Maybe you think, how could God be so petty? How could he be so vindictive? Poor Uzzah. The whole thing might make you mad. Well, that's exactly David's reaction as well. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David didn't get it. He he was trying to honor God. He had made this the biggest and best celebration he could, and something was wrong. And it was really ultimately David's fault, and Uzzah paid a price for that. Not only was David angry, but he was afraid. And so what he did next was, well, I'm not touching this thing, and they just left it there for three months. They left the ark in the care of a family, and during those three months, that family was blessed as the ark was in their presence. So finally, David was ready to try again. But this time, he did it differently. Verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. So you see, this is a a bit different approach. Still very celebrative, 
But I, I want to just point out some of the changes David made on this second attempt to bring the, the, the ark home. And I want to point out to you three signs of passionate worship. Three signs of passionate worship. First of all, reverence. Reverence. This time, David had greater respect for what God had said previously. He did not place the ark on a cart, new or otherwise. The ark was being carried as God originally commanded. We see this in the other account in the, uh, in the Old Testament of this story. The, the priests didn't pick it up by the edges. They, they placed the, the rods that were through the rings on their shoulders and carried it properly as God designed. David's previous approach had been casual and had been irreverent. And this time he shows God the respect he deserves. And notice that the joyful praise of God isn't enough. It wasn't enough the first time. That, that's not what this is about. It had to be joined with respect for what God had commanded. As Hebrews 12 says, Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So let me just say that no matter how enthusiastically you might praise the Lord, there must be reverent awe and respect. Reject a casual careless approach to the holy one that song that we started out with today come as you are to worship doesn't mean just be casual and flippant that's not what it means it means god accepts you as you come to him with your heart open to worship and adore him as he designs that's what that's about and by my reverent attitude i express passion for god's worth a second sign is sacrifice i'm sure you noticed that the procession took six steps in carrying the ark, and then they stopped and made a sacrifice. Every six steps, they're making a sacrifice. They did this all the way back to Jerusalem. This is an enormous gift of wealth. All those animals slaughtered in honor of God. It's also an unbelievable offering of time and energy. Can you imagine how excruciatingly slow that parade must have been? The thing I always hated about marching band were parades on holidays. That was cold because I was in the north. They were long. It took away my holiday. I had to get up on it. But I can't imagine how long this one took. To have the sacrifice every six steps. But David demonstrated what worship is. Responding to truth about God by giving back to him. And David was giving God not just songs, but his life. Passionate worship means I'm giving back to God not just a minimum of my attention, not a token of my time, not the least I can offer. No, I'm sacrificing to Him. And my sacrifice of praise, service, money, energy uh, expresses passion for the worth of God. Third sign of passionate worship is celebration. Because yes, like the the first one, there there was some celebrating here, but it was even more so. It was more triumphant. The parade might have been slow, but it wasn't somber. It wasn't quiet. David danced, quote-unquote, with all his might. He, he, this indicates a whirling about with enthusiastic abandon. David wasn't just doing a casual little jig. He was exhausting himself in dancing before the Lord. He expended all his energy. He expressed all the joy that his 40-year-old body would allow. And he wasn't alone. All the people were shouting and all the trumpets were blaring and it was a noisy expression of praise. So my outward 
active celebration expresses passion for God's worth. Now I want you to remember what David was wearing because that becomes significant here in a moment. It was a linen ephod, and that ephod is a white cloth robe worn by the priests. And David danced his way into the city dressed in this garment, and the crowd and the celebration grew, but somebody who was watching was not happy. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So notice, Michael is identified repeatedly here as the daughter of Saul, that's the previous king, but she's actually also David's wife. This is his wife. She's watching the parade from a window, and she noticed some crazy priest kicking up his heels on Main Street, and then she realizes that this is her husband, the king, David, and he's taking off his royal robes, he's dressed like a common priest, and he's dancing, and she's disgusted by this. She despised him. Now, David doesn't know this yet, because she only thought it uh, in her heart. So David continues, he leads the ark to its place, he finished the worship service, he gives a benediction, and then he hands out bread and dates and raisins to everybody in the crowd. He's finishing this grand celebration. And then verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now, if you can imagine how this must have hit David. He's coming to bless his family. That's what it says. Coming home to bless his household. He's just finished one of the greatest days of his life. He celebrated God to the point of exhaustion. And he walks in the house, and his wife ridicules him. Now, frankly, David responded more gently, perhaps, than I might have in his situation. But his... his, uh, answer reveals the reason for dancing verse 21 he said to michael it was before the lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the lord's people israel i will celebrate before the lord that word celebrate means to make music to laugh to play David is unapologetic for his actions he has nothing to be ashamed of he says because this is all for god's glory God put me in place to do this, to lead in this way, he says. Now, there's some significant things we can learn from this portion of the story as well. In fact, this this account is so important that it's repeated twice in Scripture, here in 2 Samuel 6, but also in 1 Chronicles 15. And there are some details between the two that that, uh, not both of them carry. It's a fascinating account, but an important one. And I think Michael shows us what unacceptable worship looks like. She exemplifies passivity. She exemplifies indifference. So let me point out to you four signs of indifferent worship. Four signs of indifferent worship. First of all, keeping your distance. She watched from a window. The rest of the city joined in the celebration. And you know why? Because that's what you did when your warriors came back victorious when something like this happened especially the women would come out and celebrate with the returning conquerors they would sing they would dance they would celebrate the victory michael stayed put that's a significant detail she remained a spectator let me call you to beware of becoming a worship bystander 
emotionally detached, physically different, distant rather. And it's one of the, the struggles that we fight against here is this performance type of scenario that we're in. It's, it's so we're, we're conscious and trying to fight against this, this concept of, okay, there's people on a stage here with lights on them, and it can turn all of us into some kind of audience, and that's not what God wants. You know who the audience is? It's God himself. We're all the participants in giving him the praise that he deserves. And so it's very easy for you especially if you're watching online, to become a detached spectator. And that is a sign of indifferent worship. Jesus said, love God with all your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength. And you can't do that as a disengaged spectator. Second sign of indifferent worship is being critical of other worshipers. She despised him in her heart. Despise, this is the same word, uh, is used of Goliath, the giant warrior, when he was confronted by young David before he became a king, the shepherd boy, Goliath looked down on, he dismissed, he was offended that this boy would challenge him, a seasoned giant warrior. He despised him. That's what Michael did of her husband. Being critical and dismissive of others is a a sinful reaction. Just, you know, think, have you ever judged somebody who was, let's say, liturgical and contemplative and seen them as spiritually lifeless or dead? Or have you ever judged someone who was loud and passionate and and demonstrative as, as some kind of ignorant fanatic? Don't easily judge or attack the the heart of worship in others. Third, exaggerating the issue is a sign of indifferent worship. She accused him of disrobing in front of the slave girls, calling him vulgar. She made it sound like David stripped naked and displayed himself to the world. That's not at all what he did. He was wearing a priestly garment. In fact, when we look at 1 Chronicles 15, 27, it says David was wearing a robe of fine linen and a linen ephod. In other words, he had two layers of clothes on. Now, granted, that's not his normal outfit, and he may have taken off that outer robe in the dance, but he did not strip bare. She's exaggerating the issue. Uh, I will never forget how uh, years ago there was a guy in my church who was extremely upset when people raised their hands in worship and he wanted me to ban that practice. So I guess the call to worship would be no raising of hands today or else. I don't know, like, I, I, try, I, I like this guy. He was a, he's a wonderful man. He's a World War II fighter pilot. He, he's a longtime church member. And, and I pointed out scriptures that talked about raising hands and and so forth and and he said that all he could see when people did that was the nazi salute to hitler and so that was his reasoning for wanting me to ban it he exaggerated the issue to try and stop something that bothered him that's what michael did and it's easy to turn our preferences into moral judgments in some fashion or another the fourth sign of indifference is valuing what others think more than god how the king has distinguished himself. She says, her words are dripping with sarcasm. She's appalled that David would dare to act so unkingly. She felt that that, the etiquette and self-control and decorum were all lost. She was sure the servants would would lose respect. She was concerned about appearances. and David cared about true passion. His uninhibited love for God contrasted with this this prideful reservation that Michael had. 
David wasn't caring what people thought. He only cared what God thought. He didn't care about decorum or tradition, only joyful worship and honor of God. Notice his response. Verse 22. I will become even more undignified than this. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. He, he says, I'm, I'm going to just do as God calls me to do. And, and whether I'm respected or not is not the issue. That's not what this is about. He, he, David's prepared to go even lower to lift up God. By the word, the word undignified, the, the word undignified here means to be disgraced. And it's the same word used to describe Goliath cursing David. Your worship will never be passionate and from the heart if you're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks, or, or if God's honored. To encounter your creator, to remember the bloody death of his son for your sin, to recall the depths of your own sin uh, might cause an undignified reaction. You might weep, you might fall to your knees, sing louder, shout praise. Such responses might come when you fully appreciate what God has done, when you really grasp the, the, the wonder of the salvation that God has poured out to you by grace through faith. C.S. Lewis uh, said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I'm fearful that too much of the church in our country is caught up in something that's moderately important. Some who see the gospel as not the life-transforming, altering truth that it is. That God the Father loved this broken world so much that he reached out to save us from sin and darkness and he sent his perfect son to invade our world as our rescuer. The eternal Jesus became man to bridge the gap between a lost world and a holy God. His sacrificial death on the cross as our sin bearer, his glorious resurrection from the grave made it possible for all who believe to become God's own children. And that message is of infinite importance. And it never should get old. And there's no room for indifference. You are not a worshiper today in any sense of the word a worshiper of God, if you have not received that truth of the gospel, if you have not thrown yourself on the mercy of God in Christ, then you are not a worshiper of the true God. You must confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And then as one who is saved, you will be a worshiper. And the more you recognize the cost of your salvation the more anxious you will be to pour out all that you have in honor of the one who saved you there's no room for indifference well this story ends with a warning and if you're going to be a passive passive spectator and indifferent worshiper there are consequences verse 23 and michael the daughter of saul had no child to the day of her death this is not about what causes infertility that's not about it at all not some blanket statement about fertility problems. This is a commentary on Michael's life of fruitlessness. Here's the point. Worship spectators and critics risk spiritual barrenness. Those who merely observe the eternal may experience a sort of desolation. Passively sitting in church is an empty thing. 
Hearing truth about God and remaining detached from that or disapproving of it is deadly. Disengagement, fault-finding are not what please God. Passive indifference is unacceptable to a holy God. And it will result in spiritual barrenness in your life where joy dries up, where people don't get saved, where relationships are not healed, where faith does not mature, where life lacks satisfaction. Our God is worthy of reverent celebration. Worship is not all festival and noise and excitement. It must also be somber and quiet and reflective, but worship must never be lifeless, detached, or passionless. So avoid at all costs the decay of lifelessness, the echo of an empty soul. This story cautions us to stay out of the window and honor God. Passionate worship. Ben Patterson tells about missionaries in the jungles of East Asia who showed the Jesus film to a primitive tribe. And you have to appreciate that these people had never seen a motion picture before, and they'd never heard of Jesus before. But that night they saw and heard it all in their own language. And they watched as this good man, Jesus, healed the sick and held adoring children on his lap and forgave sins. And then this tribe watched Jesus be held without trial and beaten by jeering soldiers, and the people became unglued over this. They stood up and shouted at those cruel men on the screen, and they demanded this outrage to stop. And when nothing happened, the film didn't stop, they, they turned on the missionary running the projector. And, and so he stopped the film and he explained that, that the story wasn't over yet. And he got them to sit back down and hold their emotions in check. The film continued and then came the crucifixion. And the people began to weep and wail. So loudly, so overcome by the injustice done to this man that the the film had to be stopped again. And again, the missionary tried to calm them down and explain, the story's not over yet. So once again, they composed themselves and sat down to see what would happen next. And then came the resurrection. Pandemonium broke out. The gathering spontaneously erupted into a party. The noise of of the, the celebration was deafening. People were dancing, they were slapping each other on the back. And just imagine a worship service that had to be periodically interrupted because people were overcome with the enormity and the emotion of the gospel story. I dream of a day where the truth of God strikes so deeply in our hearts that we are overcome. I dream of a day when we reverently celebrate the God whose love crosses all barriers of culture and style and language and gender and generation because he alone is worthy. Lord God, help us to worship you in a way that is acceptable in your sight. Lord, by your spirit, by your power, help us to overcome our indifference, our detachment, and declare our praise to the one true God the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the coming king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Surrender.
Yeah. Mm-hmm.
not dismissed. We end this time of corporate gathered worship, and you and I, if you know Jesus, go out to a life of worship and service, and our God goes with us. And so, receive this benediction, which is that word that is a good word from God to remind us as we go forth that we go in his power. Now may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Go in peace. Thank you.